Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the second in a series of reports commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. I can remember, just like everybody else, that, that era sitting there watching that little black and white TV screen with Neil Armstrong coming back down. That was you know, a really moving moment for me. We'll discuss homes built in Florida in the 1920s. After World War I, a lot of people moved to the state of Florida. A lot of land speculators started selling land sight unseen. And we'll talk about the Seminole and Miccosukee constitutions. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Stand on the shores of Cape Canaveral, looking up to the blue. Let's see what those rocket boys In July 1969, the Apollo 11 mission left the east coast of Florida and successfully landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon and successfully returned to the Earth with crewmate Michael Collins. People were brought to Cape Canaveral from around the world to make the Apollo program happen. John Tribe's career in aerospace began in England in 1954, and he came to Florida in 1961. So I, I came, went over to, uh, to the rocket side of the company I was working for over there, which was de Havilland's, and uh, worked on the Blue Streak. That was really interesting. I was, you know, I was getting into the, into the space program, and uh, then the government canceled the contract. So 1960, I wrote to uh, General Convo Astronautics, which became General Dynamics, and, uh, and they offered me a job over here on the Atlas program. So I came over here and got here in January 1961, and. Uh, they dubbed me a propulsion engineer, put me on Complex 12, and, uh, and that's how it all started over here. I became uh, the propulsion engineer on the Ranger program. Uh, I worked on the Mercury program, the Mariner program. I uh, worked on the first Centaur launch, and uh, then went back to England. I was ostensibly coming over here for a two-year you know, exposure to get some experience. I went back. It took me about a week back in England to realize that was a big mistake coming back. I'll never find anything over there that was like it was over here in terms of the, uh, the work, the people, the, the uh, climate. Uh, you know, I was really taken with, with Cocoa Beach, Florida. So uh, I immediately applied for an app, you know, to come back. And uh, by that time, General Dynamics was starting to close ranks a little bit because the Atlas program was, was coming to an end. So they gave my paperwork to uh, the North American Aviation Company, and they offered me a job on Apollo. So uh, I went over onto Apollo in, uh, in March of 1965. So I worked Apollo then all the way through to ASTP. I was the, uh, started off as the reaction control systems engineer and uh, made my way up to be basically the manager of the propulsion group for the uh, Apollo CSM. And I supported every, uh, I started on boilerplates and then worked every unmanned Apollo and then every manned Apollo, including the whole lunar program, and then into uh, 
Skylab and, uh, and Apollo Soyuz. So that, that was a great period of time. John Tribe continued from the Apollo program into the space shuttle program. He retired in 1997, but still does docent work for NASA's visitor complex. Back in 1972, at the end of uh, the lunar program, uh, I switched over to shuttle. We had a small shuttle group working for a guy called Charlie Murphy down here. Though I think there were five of us in the group. And we were the sort of the, the nemesis of the Rockwell shuttle group. And, uh, and I went back on and onto uh, the Apollo program for Apollo Soyuz, uh, but then came back onto shuttle. And of course, we worked shuttle then right the way through. Uh, and I finished up in 1997 as chief engineer for Rockwell Boeing when I retired. Uh, and then, as I said earlier, you know, I became uh, a NASA docent. I wanted to stay involved uh, and not give up my badge. And, uh, and Jerry Honeycutt, who was a center director here at the time, said, well, go work with Hugh Harrison. See if you can uh, work with him and you, we can keep you badged. And I've done that. I'm still badged, and I think I'm still badged through to 19, uh, 2023. So that's uh, probably I've been badged out here now longer than just about anybody since 1961. Tribe says that in the early years of the space program, it was not a nine-to-five job and that the people involved had an incredible work ethic. In my case, it was an enchantment with the job. It was interesting, it was exciting. Everything we were doing was, was uh, you know, making headlines. You know, I worked on the first Ranger to the moon, you know, the first manned orbital flight, the first Atlas Centaur flight, uh, the first spacecraft to Venus. You know, these were all headline events around the world. And it was, uh, the, the job was great, the people were super. You know, I'd, the, I'd work with, uh, you know, a lot of people down on the pad in Complex 12, 13, 14. Technicians were, you know, were friends. It was, uh, it was a great environment to work in. Uh, the hours weren't as bad on the Atlas program as they became later on Apollo. Apollo, you had that uh, tremendous pressure from a, on, on schedule pressure on, on meeting the uh, Kennedy's pronouncement. President John F. Kennedy declared that America would put a man on the moon within the decade in May 1961. That was just four months after Tribe arrived in America from England. In uh, April of 61 was when I'd watched the mercury capsule blow up over the Cape, you know, when I was up on the roof of Hangar J with B.G. McNabb. And, and I watched uh, Shepard's flight a few weeks later. And then they make this announcement. And, you know, the announcement itself was not uh, that much of a shock. You know, yeah, you know, we all in intended sooner or later we were going to go to the moon. But the, uh, the pronouncement that we're going to do it before 1970 it was, how the hell are we going to do that? You know, it's, uh, we've just barely got a, a foot in the door here. And uh, it was, well, you know, that's those other guys, they're going to have to do it because I'm working on the Atlas program here. We've got our own program and our own launch schedules. But uh, I bet those NASA guys are really going to have to hustle. Well, it wasn't long before I was over there with those NASA guys <laughs> having to do just that, just the hustle. Tribe says that the dedication to the Apollo mission and the long hours involved had a significant impact on space workers' personal lives. I moved into a new development over on Merritt Island, and, uh, and just about everybody in the street was involved some way or another with activities out here at KSC or the Cape. And, and we were all in the same boat. You know, we were working odd shifts, odd hours, long hours. And as the years progressed, you know, through, through the Apollo program, there were assorted marriage breakups in the street. My own marriage suffered. 
my wife, my first wife, my English wife, you know, said later that th those were the years when she was bringing up the kids on her own that sort of started the rot towards her own divorce, which occurred in 76. So yes, there was no doubt about it that the, the hours and the, and the work demands on the people that were working out there. Uh, you know, we left the, uh, the ladies of the house in most cases, none of them were working in those days. You know, it was a single, single uh, you know, provider for the house. So the women were left to bring up the kids on their own and take them everywhere, and uh, it, was, it was tough for them. For John Tribe, the Apollo 8 flight had an even greater emotional impact than the Apollo 11 mission. Probably the most uh, stirring moment of the Apollo program for me was when George Lowe pushed uh, Apollo 8 into a lunar orbit. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd gone through 1967, we'd had the fire. The program was even, you know, very tenuous right after that, and eventually, uh, you know, it settled down again, and we rebuilt the uh, the spacecraft. And uh, in 1967, October 1967, we launched the first Saturn V, which was a tremendous accomplishment. That was AS501, and that was Apollo 4. And then we turned right around in January and launched Apollo 5. In April, Apollo 6, and suddenly 1968 was getting to be a really busy time. And outside of work, there was a lot happening in the world in 1968. You know, we were, we were you know, partially aware of it, but the Vietnam situation was getting out of hand. You had the assassinations. It was a bad time for the country. And then we launched Apollo 7 in, in October of 68, and suddenly we had a vehicle that worked. You know, okay, we were past Apollo, 7, uh, Apollo 1 now, and, and now we've proven the Saturn V worked. And that's when, uh, when George Lowe said, OK, we're going to go to the moon for the next launch, because the, the lunar module was not ready. So all they could do was launch another Saturn 1B flight uh, into orbit, which was just basically repeating Apollo 7. Or they could go for broke and launch Apollo 8 to the moon. And to me, that was a, a tremendously gutsy call on the part of, of NASA. And to think that you know we went basically we put three men on top of a Saturn V for the first time and, and shot them out of Earth orbit for the first time ever men left the Earth and to me that was uh, probably more influential or stirring to me than man stepping on the moon for the first time. So Apollo 8 to me was was was, was really a huge accomplishment and of course it was wildly successful and I can remember you know them reading from Genesis when they were going around the moon. Uh, on Christmas Eve, you know, what a stirring moment that was. For all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then, of course, we moved on into 69, and, and the pace kept up. We were working, uh, you know, almost continuously. We had three vehicles in flow at that time, and we were shooting, for, of course, for Apollo 11 to go to the moon, and it did. And, uh, you know, that was, again, a very equally moving moment. And, of course, I can remember, just like everybody else, that, that era sitting there watching that little black-and-white TV screen with a... Neil Armstrong coming back down. That was uh, you know, a really moving moment for me. After the dramatic successes of Apollo 8 and Apollo 11, Tribe says he will always remember the initial failure of Apollo 16. 
my system consisted of the you know the service propulsion system engine and the 16 reaction control engines on the service module and the 12 on the command module and all those reaction control little thrusters were, were supplied with propellant through tanks that had bladders in them uh, that's because in zero g you have to pressurize that bladder to push the propellant out otherwise uh, the propellant and the gas would just mix up and you'd have a uh, an unstable situation firing the engine so these bladders were very sensitive teflon bladders and on 16 we had a, a technician fail to connect a, a connection fully to the spacecraft. And we were kind of limited on the instrumentation we, could, we had to look at that data go, of what was going on in the vehicle. We didn't realize it, but we were only pressurizing one side of the bladder. We were supposed to pressurize both sides simultaneously. When you pressurize one side of the bladder, uh, it, it only goes so far before it, before it breaks. And we broke the bladder that night. This was one night in, in, towards the end of January 1972. Well, when that happened, that bladder, that tank, was in what we call the pork chop area of the command module, which is the area un outside of the crew pressure module, right above the heat shield. And the only way you could access that is through the heat shield. So now you're faced with a Saturn V on the pad with a broken tank. It had to roll back. So we, we, we were the cause for that vehicle to roll back to the VAB. At the D-stack, the command service module, lunar module from the vehicle, roll that back to the ONC building, D-stack all the pieces until we had a command module separate. Take the heat shield off the command module to get to that tank. Well, the whole procedure was, we were beaten up literally by upper management. You know, we, we, it was embarrassing to my company, it was embarrassing to NASA to have to slip the launch. And uh, it was a really, really bad time for the group. The Apollo 16 mission was successfully launched a month later, and Tribe says at least one person was pleased about the delay. What was kind of neat was, a few, not a few years back, but Charlie Duke was down here, and Charlie Duke was on the Apollo 16 crew. And we were talking about that incident, and he said, were you, were you part of that? And I said, oh, yeah, I was part of it. It was my group, and so we took the, took the hit. He said, well, let me shake you by the hand. He said, I got pneumonia, and they were getting ready to pull me off the crew. He said, you slipped the launch a month, I got to walk on the moon. Thanks a lot, and he shook my hand. I said, well, there's a silver line in there, I guess, eventually. After 65 years in the space industry, John Tribe is excited about the future. With what's coming down the pike in terms of SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, Sierra Nevada, there's a whole bunch of companies all, all, uh, all pursuing their own launch programs. Uh, this is going to be a very busy place over the next five years. And uh, I think it's going to be as exciting and as uh, neat a place to be at and, and view what was going on as it was in the 60s. Our series of reports commemorating the 50th anniversary of the first lunar landing will continue next month. Stand on the shores of Cape Canaveral Looking up to the blue Let's see what Rocket boys can do. There's nothing that those rocket boys can't do. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. 
The 2019 FHS Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held at the Radisson Resort at Port Canaveral May 16th through 18th. The theme of the event is Countdown to History, Ice Age to the Space Age. More information and discounted hotel reservations are available at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida experienced a land boom in the 1920s when many homes were built. Yeah, that's right, Ben. The 1920s was really one of the first major land booms in Florida's history. In the late 19th century, we had a, uh, a surge in the state's population. But in the 1920s, after World War I, a lot of people moved to the state of Florida. A lot of land speculators started selling land sight unseen throughout the state of Florida. But we saw a massive influx of people. So by the end of the decade, by 1930, there were about 1.4, 1.5 million people in the state. Now, by today's standards, that's fairly small. But compare that to 1900, at the turn of the 20th century, where there were closer to half a million people, that's an enormous expansion. You know, over 50% of the population grew within just a few short decades. So with that came, of course, infrastructure improvements, but also homes, private residences throughout the state. That included growing metropolitan areas like Miami, Orlando, Jacksonville, Pensacola, Tampa, and places like that, but also more rural areas. And you also saw an influx of wealthy uh, folks who were moving into Florida and building these large mansions. Uh, along the uh, coastal regions, but also in the interior. And they were kind of getting into this land speculation and and the, the land boom that was occurring in the 1920s. Now, you have a publication here that's primarily photographs of homes, many that were owned by very wealthy people. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at is a unique publication. There aren't that many out there. It was produced by the Commissioner of Agriculture, uh, which is kind of hard to believe. You know, at that time, the Commissioner of Agriculture was in charge of a lot of of different departments, and that included the Office of the Commissioner of Immigration, which was originally founded back in 1868, became part of the Commissioner of Agriculture's auspices in 1885. And into the 20th century, a big part of, of taxpayer money was put towards trying to attract people to move to Florida. And this publication is a a very tangible record of that effort. It's a beautiful book. It was um, bound actually by the record company up in St. Augustine, and there was a a plate company in in Tampa that laid out these really wonderfully done. Many are actually colorized plates. And as you said, it's it's simply just a book showing off the best and uh, various types of, of homes that are built throughout Florida. And in the introduction, there's very little verbiage, very little writing, but there is a a short preface that was written by the Commissioner of Agriculture's office. And they say here, Quote, thousands of people come annually to Florida for a few weeks or months during the winter season, stopping at the splendid hotels and apartment houses that are to be found in nearly every tourist center, and these persons have long since learned the facts concerning Florida as a winter resort. But there is another thing that some have learned, and many are now discovering, that Florida is a place to live, unquote. And there's an emphasis on the word live. So they're trying to get people not only to come here during the winter months, but live here year-round. And with this came a lot of infrastructure improvement. And again, this was just an effort, kind of a, uh, a promotional effort on, on behalf of the state government to try and get people to move here. And there are a lot of famous individuals that we would recognize, folks like J.C. Penney, you know, the, the, who headed the famous department store, Thomas Edison 
Madison, Henry Ford. We have various mayors from other uh, large towns throughout America who built homes here. We have the uh, John D. Rockefeller had a, a, a palatial home that we see photographed here. And the list goes on and on. But again, it's not only just the most prominent homes in Florida, but they were trying to provide readers with kind of an example of what you could, you could carve out your own little piece of paradise in Florida. This could be one of your homes, sort of, if you will. Now, some of the architectural styles depicted in this book have become iconic in Florida, and many of these homes still exist today, right? Yeah, that's right. These homes in 1930 were, of course, brand new. They were cutting edge, new technology, things like that. And now they're, they've become kind of cultural resources. One great example is the Cadizan, uh, John Ringling's house down in Sarasota. That's featured here in the book. Uh, we have Henry Flagler's home down in West Palm. You know, these have become now museums. A lot of the, the architectural styles that are represented include Mediterranean Revival, which was very common in the 1920s and became very popular throughout the entire state of Florida. But you also see Colonial Revival homes homes that were uh, popular, these plantation-style estates that were popular in North Florida, in what would have been the the Cotton Belt region of Florida. But you also see some rather unusual styles that really didn't take off in Florida, one of which is called uh, Dutch South African, and it has these very elaborate carvings and poured concrete on on the roofs and ceilings. So there's definitely some variety within these types of homes, and this book is a wonderful record to kind of give us a snapshot of what was happening at a very difficult time in Florida's history. 1930, Florida is in the Great Depression. So here the state is, is spending taxpayer money to try and attract wealthy industrialists to move to Florida, live here year-round, and, and hopefully bring some of that tax base or increase that tax base for the state. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see some of the homes we've been talking about, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this report on the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. At the 2018 Florida Conference of Historians, a day-long session examined each of the Florida Constitutions and discussed how they addressed the concerns of their time. The session took place in the Old Senate Chamber in the Florida Historic Capitol Museum in Tallahassee. During the conference, Dr. Andrew Frank talked about the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. The Seminoles and Miccosukees have been residents um, at a political units or separate units in Florida for a very long time, more than 100 years. And in the early 1950s, there was a conservative pushback against basically the Indians' New Deal, and there was a pushback against um, self-determination for Native peoples. And under the Eisenhower administration, there was a policy called termination. Um, this is in 1954 where the Seminoles were told that their rights to common land, what was reservation land, which was established in the early 20th century, and their right to be considered a community was going to be terminated. This was a status that was reserved for, or targeted to native peoples across the country who were English speaking, private property owning, had democratic governments, um, who had all the markings for what in the 1950s would have been perfect assimilation. And for some reason, the Seminoles, and they're all, if there were Indians in Florida, they were deemed Seminoles, they were put on this list, despite the fact that the characteristics that were typically used to get on the list did not apply to them. 
and they protested. They went, a handful went to Washington, D.C., uh, but they held hearings on the Dania Reservation, which is now Hollywood, and also at Big Cypress and Brighton, fundamentally saying, we can't be terminated, right? This is, this is ridiculous. So in 1954, they begin work on creating a constitution, which carries with it a sense that this is the start of government. So the Seminoles put together a constitution. They put it up for ratification in 1957, um, and it passes 241 to 5. The Miccosukee tribe of Florida was a part of the Seminole Nation until the issue of termination highlighted the cultural and political differences between them. The Miccosukees began organizing as an independent tribe with a goal to create their own constitution. In the Miccosukee Reservation, which is down on Tamiami Trail, hardly anyone voted. They opted out. They thought the whole thing was a sham. And instead, what they insisted on was an ancient form of governance that was local where clan leaders and medicine men became political leaders, and they thought that this was the only legitimate form of government. And even if it meant termination, they wanted to be left alone. And that was, in essence, what led to the Seminoles passing this charter. It gets ratified by the United States, and now we have a, a Seminole National Council. So that's in 57. Immediately after that, the Miccosukees down in Tamiami Trail, they are horrified by this because now there is a council speaking on their behalf and authorized to do so that they really reject both culturally as well as politically. And so they start forming their own government. And in all sorts of ways, they're able to kind of carve out a separate political entity in 1963. And they create a constitution that looks remarkably similar to the Seminole one, but they call themselves the Miccosukee Nation. The Seminole and the Miccosukee constitutions contained Western-style governing structures designed to meet the needs of their people and maintain their separate identities and cultural traditions. Both constitutions were written under the auspices of the United States. And so it worked very much with the unicameral legislation where every reservation was to have representation on the council. And there were three for the Seminoles case. So Big Cypress had one representative, Brighton had another, um, and Dania later Hollywood got a third. And then they had at-large bids. And so this was one person, one vote. If you're over 21, you get one vote. And it was highly democratic, which cut against all sorts of traditions of how power was traditionally used in seminal society. So it reflected very much this idea of um, anti-communism of the 1950s. It re represented this idea of one must have a solitary voice, that consensus is the key to good governance. And so in very many ways, these charters reflected the outside. But on the inside, they did a pretty remarkable job of finding a way to articulate how the tribe has the right to deal with the state government and the federal government. So for the first time in US history, the Seminoles were deemed a legitimate form of government, which for US constitution and state constitution, it gave them an equal footing. It gave them a state-to-state -state relationship, not just with the federal government, but also with the state of Florida which ultimately gives them a tremendous amount of leverage over the next 50 some odd years. Federal recognition provided the two Florida tribes with a stronger platform to assert land rights, gain economic power, and manage their environmental resources. Andrew Frank. Now with independent resources, they get to choose where the roads get built. They get to choose how they're going to spend the money that they earn. And so over the course of time, like all governments, they have to decide, one, how powerful will this council be? but also what are the responsibilities of a government to its people? Is the responsibility to give a check to every family? Is the responsibility to provide education, healthcare, and senior services? 
And that has been a, uh, the debate amongst themselves since 57. But with more responsibilities or more financial well-being, they have more choices. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.